a couple of years ago, Susan and I wanted to strategically plant some cedars by this window because in the city, sometimes the houses line up and the, the windows line up, and you know that's not the greatest. So you want a little bit of privacy. So we strategically planted these cedars because cedars are unaffected by the drama of weather. 30 above, 30 below. They're really unfazed. They're evergreen. We've been working through um, the, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and the, the pastoral goal of taking you through that letter is that, our, that we as a church would have souls that are evergreen. That regardless of what's going on around us, whether it's politically, economically, right, socioeconomically, or, or uh, you know, physically, tangibly, that we could have souls that are really at rest in our faith in God, really at rest in the goodness of His promise, and not so easily uh, phased by different conditions. And Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, it ends with this really bold claim, and that's where we're going to go today. Our text is from chapter 4, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 13. This bold claim that united to Christ by grace through faith, his soul is remaining at peace in the midst of volatile circumstances. And may this be said of us, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. This is God's Word. Verse 7 gives us this tremendous, bold claim that we can enjoy peace that passes all understanding. The peace of God is one of the fruits of the Spirit. For those of you new to the Bible, a fruit of the Spirit means the results of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Child of God, your faith is in Jesus. And one of the results of that is you have this peace that passes all understanding. And so if it's, some, if it's a fruit of the working of the Spirit, then it means that it's not something that we can just manifest and produce in ourselves. But what we can do, what I think this text is very clear about, is we can't produce it, but we can certainly cultivate it. We can certainly cultivate an environment in our hearts and our minds and our lives where the Spirit can do deep and rich work. We have a lot of plants at our house. Susan loves plants. We have arguably too many plants. 
Sometimes I feel like when we have guests and they open the front door, it's like the crescendo of, you know, uh, the, the, the theme from Jurassic Park plays. You know, welcome to... Ju- na, 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 na. There's just plants everywhere. And Susan has no power to produce life in the seed. She has no power to produce anything. But boy, there's a lot of cultivation in our house. She's... She's on the soil. She's on the temperature. She's on, the, she's on fungus watch. She's always waging war on bugs. There's always a war on bugs in our house. She is cultivating. And she does propagate. For those of you who aren't into plant culture, like I am now, you probably propagate a plant. You can strategically and methodically separate it at certain points in the plant and Put them in water, put them in soil, and grow a whole new plant. There's all these things going. There's all this cultivation. And the Apostle Paul is saying that the peace of God that transcends all understanding, it can guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And this can actually be cultivated. He calls the church to rejoice. He says it twice. He's in prison, remember? Nothing's good. This isn't just blind optimism. He doesn't start the text, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He's not just one of these inexplainably happy optimists who are kind of like, you feel like they're, they're like, are you real or are you made of plastic? I was talking with somebody one time who was going through a difficult time and they were explaining this person that was difficult in, for them to relate to. And they said, you know, I understand rage and I understand anger, but what I can't understand is a smile that comes from nowhere. And I never forgot that line where they described it like that, a smile that comes from nowhere. You just feel like someone's being fake. Is that what the Apostle Paul's doing here? Absolutely not. He's not in a Roman prison saying just think about puppies and unicorns and everything's going to be better. There's a very real cultivation that is possible for you and I that frankly we don't enjoy enough. The peace of God that passes all understanding, the reason I say that is because culturally speaking our understandings of peace are essentially at the absence of conflict. So if you can remove the conflict in your life you can have peace. But biblical understanding of peace is that even if things are on fire, deep in the soul, there can be this sense of confidence, this sense of strength, this sense of calm, poise, equilibrium. And so we're being encouraged to rejoice in something that's rooted, not in ignoring reality, but this peace that is rooted in deep reality, that the apostle has anchored his soul in two things that we're going to focus on this morning, thankfulness and thoughtfulness. You look at the flow of this text, that's kind of the way that it moves. The way that he closes the, the, the letter. Nothing's good. I'm in prison. I might die here. But you know, there is this divine thankfulness, something that I know my hope is rooted in a person, not a circumstance. And there's this thankfulness that's leading to deep thoughtfulness. And this deep thoughtfulness is cultivating this joy in my life. And so, as we look at these two things... Uh, this morning, I want us to see that the thankfulness and the thoughtfulness, they play out very obviously in a lifestyle of prayer and of meditation. Now, prayer and meditation are not spiritual disciplines that God gives us to occupy our time. They're gifts that God gives us so that strength and peace and resolve can occupy our hearts and our minds. Because as we become intentional about being thankful and thoughtful, as we, from this position of rest and the grace of God, do these things, 
the gospel comes in 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 a powerfully tangible, palpable way, and it causes there to be huge displacement of worry and anxiety and fear. You know that from the context, because he's in a terrible situation, and he's encouraging the church to not be anxious about anything. And so in the same way that if you've ever been at a pool, and somebody yells, cannonball, and they jump in, and there's this huge displacement of waters. They soak everybody on the side of the pool. You know, this is fluid mechanics at work. This forcibly solid object has come in, come in, and displaced something else. The water had no choice but to make room for this thing of substance. That's the gospel in your life and mine. And every time we stop to reflect on the goodness of God, the goodness of His grace, the forgiveness of Jesus, the implications of a physical, tangible resurrection, when you think about that, that comes into your heart and your mind, and it displaces things. It forces things out, the worry, the anxiety. This is what the apostle is encouraging uh, the church in, and this church in by extension. So first, let's consider the thankfulness. Being thankful for God's presence and His empowering grace for today. In verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And I want you to notice that the prayer is with thankfulness. You don't have an answer yet. Nothing's changed. Everything's exactly the same. And yet there's this thankfulness. And what this teaches us, if we're going to pray before anything changes and we have any answer that resembles what we ask for, this teaches us something. It teaches us that Ultimately, prayer is not to get things. Prayer is to get God. He's writing it in prison, and if you, you know, if you, if you fact check me and you back up, he's pretty honest. He's like, I don't actually know if I'm going to live or die. And, he, and in fact, he's so bold, he goes, and to be honest, it's a toss-up, which is better. I mean, it's better for you if I live, because then I can come and encourage you and point you to the gospel and point you to the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi and show you how Jesus fulfilled all that and allow that to recalibrate and reorient your life under the crushing regime of the totalitarian reality that is Rome. I mean, so he's better for you, but it's better for me that I die. Not because he's wishing death, not because Christianity is the great escape, not because it's an evacuation, because he's convinced of the physical resurrection. And the restoration of all things. And so because all these things are true, prayer is not to get things, it's to get God. And so the thankfulness comes not because God would answer the prayer in a way that resembles even the way that we asked. And sometimes he does, and that's amazing. But, you know, even if he doesn't, right, to borrow from Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and theologians, he it would say, you know, ultimately in prayer, God gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. That's how God answers prayer. Because we're not praying to a genie. We're praying to a loving father. Knows what it is that we need. Gives us everything we need, withholds everything that we don't. And even though you and I can't understand the outworkings of all of that, he's good and loving and wise. The apostle is convinced of this, and it's, he's encouraging thankfulness. Look, just be thankful when you pray this prayer and meditation in the apostles' life, and it's being encouraged in our life, it takes the gospel from being something that is objectively true to being experientially true. There's not a person in this church who is not struggling with something right now. 
that causes you worry, anxiety, fear. There's not a person in this church, starting with me, by the way. It's unfortunate the stage is so tall because I'm certainly not preaching down to you. I'm including myself in this. I mean, all of us. And so because, because that is true, we need very much for this gospel to not just be a spiritual head game. It's got to be experientially true. And the apostle is saying, I learned the secret to that. And it starts with thankfulness. And it starts with coming to God, knowing that you need God. Let's move on to the thoughtfulness. So the thoughtfulness about God's renewal for all of eternity. You know, if you were to do a study on the way that everybody preached in the New Testament, right? What was the early church talking about? What were the sermons? What was the content of the sermons? You can read them. Read them all through the book of Acts, right? What was the content of the sermons? You know what they are all doing? They're all going, you know what? Since Abraham, they start marching through history, marching through Israel's history of the faithfulness of God. And then they go, you know that Jesus guy that was crucified? You know, P.S. Acts chapter 17, not done in a corner. Something that the whole world knew about. Something that Acts chapter, chapter 17 says, turn the world on its head. All of these sermons were, were pointing to, ultimately, God's plan in Jesus Christ, the resurrection. And if the resurrection is true, and if Jesus is who he said that he is, then what implication does that have on my life, on the sorrows and the needs on the sickness and disease, on a government that's not legislating things that, the way that I wish that they did. I don't get to vote because it's ancient Rome, so you just roll with the punches. I mean, what is the implications of all of this? There's this thoughtfulness about the renewal that is coming. And there's a thoughtfulness about the renewal in a very practical way. And you get it there, you look at it, in verse 6. He says, you know, what should we be meditating on and thinking about? And he says whatever six times. For those of you who are English teachers or you do a lot of writing for a living, if you use the word, same word, six times, either somebody tells you, hey, that's a little repetitive, pick another word, or somebody who, if you're reading somebody else's work and they say something six times, then that person's going to say, huh, this is here for a reason. The Apostle Paul was an academic, an expert in the law, spoke multiple languages, was a philosopher, and organized early communities that were engaging with different socioeconomic demographics. So he's not run out of adjectives. He's not run out of ways of describing things. Six times he says whatever. So what does this teach us? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, excellent, the whatever's teach us that, you know, church, we can find beauty in any place. And we should look for beauty and celebrate it when we see it in any place. But our practices that govern our lives come from a very specific place. Look at those two verses. Whatever. You want to meditate on things? You want your heart and your mind to be full of, of joy? Think about these things, but look at the next verse, verse 9. Practice these things. What does this give us as you're thinking about having, you know, the peace of God guard our hearts and our minds? And why can we find beauty in any place? Again, this gets back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You see, Christian faith is not evacuation from planet Earth. So what that means is, every time we look out and we see beauty in art and music, and somebody laying their life down in a generous way, and philanthropy, when we see beauty in nature, the lake, the mountain, the sky, the cosmos, when you see beauty in the ingenuity of humanity, when you, when you see that beauty, that's just a taste of what's coming. Not somewhere out in the, str- not somewhere out in the cosmos, here. This is the bodily resurrection of Jesus having implications. Paul is saying, you, you need to see the beauty of God. Yes, in the church. Yes, in worship. Yes, in prayer. Yes, in scripture. Yes, in meditation. But he's using the word whatever, and he does it six times. This teaches us some other things, too. It teaches us not, not to have sort of a scandalous attraction to evil and terrible and debaucherous things. To not become so entertained and in love with um, things that are contrary to the nature of God. To sort of get sucked into the vortexes of negativity. We all know that studies teach us that bad news travels infinitely further and faster than good news. There's something in humanity that goes, oh man, did you hear about this horrifying thing? We all are familiar with the derogatory term disaster porn, outrage culture. And now here in 2021... We have all of that at the scroll and the flick of the thumb to just sort of live in the frustrating, anxious anger and drama perpetually. But we're being called to this meditation of the beauty of God. Not just in the ethereal and the, and the scriptural, though that is true, but also in the physical. We see these glimpses. They're only glimpses because they're all broken, because the world is sideways, but they're glimpses of what Jesus Christ is going to restore. And this is gloriously good news. But after this beauty that we can find in any place, our practices we get from a specific place. We don't get discipled by the culture. We, we, we see there's thinking and practicing. He says, whatever you have learned or received or seen in me, practice these things, practice this, and the peace of God will be with you. So what, was, what did the practicing look like? It looked like the gathering and the worshiping. It looked like the eating and drinking and the communing. It looked like praying and meditating. Right? It looked like all those things, but it also looked like what I was describing to you before. You know, the early church and this church. It looked like regardless of what socioeconomic status you had out there, when you came in here, you were equal. Whether you were a man or a, or a woman, and in the culture at that time, there was these disparaging differences. In our culture today, we're still trying to close the gap on those disparaging differences. But then you walk in here and there's no difference. Where there's equal. We're men and women ministering together the gospel together. With this equal dignity before God. These, these communities where they came together, whether you were poor or you were rich. I mean, at that time, it was scandalous and crazy. To hang out with the poor people. That's just not, you didn't do that. It was gross and disgusting and demeaning. But in those churches, it was like you walked in that door. It was like stepping into another universe. And so the apostles like, you know, practice. Begin to practice things. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 12 that he learned this. Look at verse 12. He doesn't say... You know, I've got this gift. I did a personality test. And as it turns out, I really have this proclivity to being a peaceful person. He didn't learn it. I'm sorry. He did learn it. He didn't have it. He wasn't born with it. 
And not, not only was he not born with it, not only is it like, well, there's certain kinds of people here in the church that can like really grip this, but some of you guys are natural warriors, and so you can't, or some of you struggle with, with, with mental health. Many of us struggle with mental health, and so you have to read the Bible with an asterisk because this doesn't apply to you because you... No, absolutely not. You, it, there's, no, there's nothing natural about it. He learned it. It's also not mystical. He doesn't say... Guys, the peace that passes all understanding, let me tell you how I got it. There I was on the Damascus Road. Read my testimony in Acts 9. And there was a blue unibeam that shot down from the sky like a really bad X-Men movie or all the X-Men movies. I love blue unibeams. There's no blue unibeam. This is not mystical and spiritual. He says, I learned it, which is, well, that's good news because that means I can learn it. That means you can learn it. How did he do this? He's not trying to escape his reality. He's being very, very thoughtful about his reality. You know, he learned it, you know, by leaning constantly, repetitively. The meditating, the prayer, just became formative part of his life. The thankfulness, the thoughtfulness. It was like a cycle. Thankful and thoughtful, thankful and thoughtful, thankful and thoughtful. And here he is now. He's in Roman prison. He might die. And he's like, guys, I've learned the secret. I mean, I can be on top or on the bottom, but my soul is evergreen. I'm just not that phased. I want that in my life, and I want that for you in your life. I want that in the lives of my... I'm pointing to the empty chairs. My children. We want this. Why do we want, why, why do we want this and why do we need this? Because we're, we're so um, quick, I think, to turn to an anesthetic instead of the cure. The gospel is the cure, but everything else is the anesthetic. We can, you know, do a lot of work and techniques around expelling negative thoughts. And that's good. That's a good practice. We can try and avoid stressful situations, difficult conversations. We can exercise appropriate self-care. That's all good, too. I mean, that's good. We can do some things that are not so good. I mean, those things are good. They're still not the cure. We can bury ourselves in Netflix. We can bury ourselves in exercise, junk food, health food. Become gym rats, health nuts, bury ourselves in books, academia. Shopping, hobbies, endlessly scroll on our phones, pick a substance to abuse, pick something to numb the mind and numb the heart. I mean, we can all, all of us can turn and try to escape to some impotent mini-messiah because we're tired of feeling the pain, we're tired of the frustration, we're tired of the worry and the anxiety. And so we can sort of opt for the anesthetic. But the Apostle Paul is saying, actually... I've learned the secret of contentment in every situation. And the gospel holds out healing. The gospel will transform our hearts and our minds so that we can enjoy this peace. And I'm not saying that we are bulletproof and that we never have terrible days and and flop on our couches and takes us extra long to get going in the morning because of the sadness. I've experienced all of those things. You've experienced those things. I'm not saying that, that you know, we become bulletproof Christians, but the evergreen soul means that more and more as we live with these practices in our lives, that we're just not sucked in and drowned by the things that, are, that the rest of the culture around us is, is, is drowned in. You know, I don't know if you've noticed that the last two years, and I say that because, of course, I know all of you have noticed, that a great summary of the way that our news feeds and most of our folks and colleagues have sounded could be summarized with 
The sky is falling. Well, it's not falling. Because we are in the lives of the death-proof Savior of the universe, who is holding the world together with the word of his power. And so this ought to give us an equilibrium and a poise and a calm. And we ought to sound a lot different than everybody else around us who exists at the sky's fall. And so like the apostle, we learn to lean. And we just continually lean. And we just wake up every day and we lean again and we lean and we lean. And we teach our children, if you have kids, to lean and lean. And so that we unravel ourselves out of the worry and the anxiety of the day. And we recalibrate in the peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and guards our minds through Christ Jesus. And so then we're like children who in the middle of a storm when the thunder cracks and the lightning lights up their room with a flash and they get up and they run with their little feet and they jump into their parents' bed. And then the, 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 the loving parent wraps their arms around the child and then in a couple of minutes the child is asleep. But the storm is still there so physically speaking nothing's changed. But at the core of that child everything's changed. And you come in here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And as the gospel is preached, well, before it's even preached, as the gospel is sung into your hearts, and as we sing the gospel, and as we confess the good news of the gospel, and as we confess our sins and remind ourselves of the gospel, and then I come up, and by the time I get here, you've already heard the gospel like three or four times, and then I preach the gospel. As we, as we come in and as we, 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 we do this, we're like those kids who, of course, when you leave this place... Practically speaking, all of the problems you had when you walked in here, they're still waiting for you on Monday. Good news, church. Good news. By the power of His grace and His indwelling spirit, you change. You have changed. You see, it doesn't matter whether or not the circumstance ever changes. You change. And how do you and I change? The thankfulness and the thoughtfulness like a playlist on repeat. This is the good news of the gospel and its impact in our lives so that we are very much like those children. You know, Isaiah uh, chapter 57, it says that if we don't hope in the Lord, if, if we don't hope in the God of grace, if we hope in anything smaller, we're like the tossing sea that cannot rest. The soul is turbulent and the undercurrent is constantly churning up dirt. There is no rest for the wicked. There's no rest for those who've chosen something smaller than Jesus and made it their Jesus. If we center our life on anything other than Him who gives us strength, we will not have the peace that passes all understanding. And our hearts will constantly caving in like a sandcastle that a child has built too close to the shore. And we'll wake up and we'll click the newsfeed and we'll say, what's happening in the province today? And that then will therefore dictate our hearts and our minds. But no, church, not us. Thankfulness and thoughtfulness and the goodness of our God. I'm going to close with this. You know, Christ at the cross, it's God's grace on display in all of this. It's a constant reminder of why we can have peace. Because at the cross, Jesus gave up his peace. He gave up his peace with God so that you and I could be strengthened by the peace of God. At the cross, you know, Jesus, he sweat blood. He was flooded with sorrow and anxiety in his trial. So that you and I could be flooded with God's peace in ours. At the cross, Jesus was abandoned by God in his greatest time of need. So that you and I will never be abandoned in ours. This is the secret. The peace of God is not a rare lightning strike. 
that we mysteriously experience. The peace of God is a gift that you and I are intended to routinely, repeatedly experience. And so may we tether our hope to something that is unsinkable, unkillable, the unkillable Savior of the universe, Jesus Christ. And because of His divine death and resurrection, as those who are saved by grace, may we make the practice of turning to the Lord of grace. And as we do this, may this practice of thankfulness and thoughtfulness in prayer and meditation give us the peace that passes all understanding and may it guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.